The Deviation Podcast. Landau and welcome to the Deviation Podcast. I am here today with Sergeant First Class Lane Morris. Would you like to further introduce yourself, Lane? Uh, let me see. Lane uh, Morris, yep. Uh, I'm uh, 55 years old. Uh, I did go to Afghanistan from uh, 2001 to 2002, um, where uh, get, eventually I was wounded in Afghanistan. And then you were active in the military for 19 years, is that correct? You know, I think by the time they actually medically retired me, I think I got in 22. So I was in from 83 until 2004 or 5, just depending on the paperwork. Wow. And how many of those years were you a Green Beret for? Uh, let me see. I, I uh, 87. Okay. So since 1987 is when I made it through the course. So, yeah, it's, I'm old. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> You're shocked. Wow. <laughs> That's before I was born. Just a couple years, though, so not, yeah. not too far. <laughs> um, so, like I said before, thank you for being here today. My and pleasure. I'd love to hear your story from the beginning, how, how it is that you've become who you are today and how it all started. You know, it probably, for me, for the military, it started out, um, I was just looking for something to do, and I didn't want to go to college at the time, and uh, it, you know, it seemed like a good, um, a good test, something to test yourself, I guess that was what I was into, or interested in. As a kid, I had grown up in Thailand uh, during the Vietnam War. And so I had I had a couple of experiences with some special forces guys. They actually came and ran some kind of a uh, little Boy Scout camp um, where they invited kids in. And I remember I thought that was so cool because every morning they'd wake us up. It was like a one week camp, and these guys. I mean, I just I thought they were the coolest guys on the planet because they were military, but they were also they had green berets on. I, and so, you know, you just get that whole mystique. And every morning, they woke us up by throwing a grenade into a pit. They just dug a pit in the ground. And so every morning, they throw a grenade in there. So you just, you woke up every morning to this whomp. <laughs> I just thought, those guys are so cool. So I, you know, I, I kind of knew um, what I thought was a, a path that um, would, for me, would kind of be the ultimate. So I didn't. Um, I can't say I had that as my first goal. I knew I wanted to jump out of planes, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Um, so I went in to see a recruiter, and the recruiter, you know, you got to watch those recruiters because I go in, and next thing you know, the recruiter's telling me, you know, son, you got two choices. You can either be a laundry specialist or you can be in field artillery. I'm like, well, I don't. I mean, I know I don't want to be a laundry specialist, but 
I don't know about field artillery. I mean, it sounds kind of interesting, but I'd really like to jump out of planes and stuff like that. And uh, the guy said, oh, well, you know, okay, so here's what you do. You join field artillery, and then when you get done with basic training and, and field artillery school, then you just go to your unit and you tell them you want to jump out of planes, and they'll just put you right through. I went, oh, okay, all right, where do I sign? So I signed up and went through basic training, field artillery training, and got signed back to my unit. Of course, first day I walked in there and said, so, how do I go to jump school? And they, of course, they started laughing and like, son, this isn't an airborne unit. Why would we send you to jump school? Uh, all right, I see how it works with the military. So that was my that was my you know first first introduction to the military. But it was soon after that I actually met a girl. I don't she wasn't my girlfriend, but we went on a couple of dates. And her father was a commander on a special forces team, and so she was telling me a little bit about it. I went, well, that's what I want to do. And so uh, she took me home to meet her father, and uh, he got me recruited, signed right up, and they sent me off to special forces schools, and a couple years later, I I was in, so kind of a fun little story, the circuitous route to becoming a a special forces soldier. So how did being a special forces soldier differentiate between being, for lack of better phrasing, a regular soldier like what were some of the main differences once you became a green beret you know it's like we used to tell the the infantry guys that uh would guard our perimeters in afghanistan and i mean these are guys that signed up to do all the stuff that you see guys do in the movies and and they're not they're stuck guarding a perimeter staring out you know hoping somebody's going to attack and and in a lot of ways, that job sucks. And so we used to tell them when we take them out with this, we're just doing the stuff you thought <laughs> you were going to sign up to do. Um, and so the, the, the regular Army units we, we worked with in Afghanistan um, loved being around us because we took them out to do the stuff that they thought they were going to get to do when they joined the Army. And that's not a knock on your basic infantry guy I'm you know I'm an infantry guy proud of that um, we share that heritage but but in the regular army too often everybody gets conscripted to do jobs that they didn't think they were signing up to do garden a library or, or you know driving a truck or garden a convoy um, MPs type of things or, or I mean all different all different branches end up doing lots of things that they didn't think they were going to do that aren't nearly as cool as the thing that they thought they signed up to do. And so in special forces, we didn't, we didn't have to kind of deal with that. We got to do um, the cool things from day one. So to me, that was one of the, one of the big differences. Was the training quite different as well? Yeah, the training's quite a bit more advanced. Um, and so it takes longer to get through it, and you know more people don't make it through there. So it's a couple of years there, depending on what your uh, specialty is. On a special forces team, everybody has a specialty. So you got one guy 
who's a weapons expert. So he, you know, he knows all the weapons of the world, tears them apart, fixes them, and all that type of thing. And another guy's a, a radio, a communications guy. So he knows all the radios and antenna theory, you know, so he can figure out how to rig a, a, an antenna so that you can talk to people halfway around the world. And, um, and then some guys are a, a medic, and they're not a, they're advanced medics. So it's been, uh, the civilian equivalent is a physician's assistant. So they can do kind of minor surgeries on you and um, save your life if you get shot and that type of thing. And then there's other guys who um, are just not quite as smart as everybody else, and they become demolition guys. So that's what I was, is the demolition guy. <laughs> you get to blow stuff up. That had to be fun. Oh, yeah. It was all, it was, uh, yeah. I, you know, they went over all those other things and I, they didn't have to, you know, everybody, for all intents and purposes, everybody's a weapons guy. You know, you, know, you get to shoot all the guns you want all the time, but uh, blowing stuff up, that's where it's at. So it was an easy choice for me. Is there a particular story that stands out from when you were blowing something up that was just like, this is why I joined, this is everything I hoped it would be in that instance? Um, you know, I remember in training once, I thought it was pretty cool. They had a semi out there on the range. So it was a semi trailer with a big, um, I, don't, I don't think it was a gas tank. I think it was a, a dairy uh, you know, the, the tank that you haul dairy products with. And so uh, we were going to blow that up. So we figured the uh, charges to different charges, different types of explosives do different types of things. Some explosives are very good at cutting material, cutting steel, and some explosives are very good at moving things, like dynamite. Anyways, so we had this semi... And uh, so we got this thing rigged up to go, and we're back in the safety bunker where you're watching the, the slit in it is, I don't know, four inches tall or something, and it's, it's pretty deep, so you don't see a whole lot. And so that, uh, that semi goes off, and it just disappears. It's just gone. Boom! It's gone. And so we're all looking to see, because we're pretty excited to see what happens to this thing. And, and about the time somebody goes... Where did it, where is it? It's gone, it's just gone. All of a sudden, whammo, this thing hits the ground. You're like, whoa, that was so cool. I don't know how many times it went up, it landed on its, on its back, but I don't know how many times it flipped, but that thing was in the, you know, the hang time on that thing was uh, three or four seconds. And we thought that was, uh, that's when I realized, man, I am in the right spot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What was the funniest thing that happened during your training? What was the funniest thing that either happened to you or someone on your team during training? During training? Um, you know, that was so long ago, Paige. That I... Well, how about I change my question? What's the funniest thing that happened during your training or during your entire I, I tell, I'll tell you the funniest thing, at least I thought it was funny, uh, in Afghanistan. We were blowing some, some captured stuff up. And you're, you know, when you're, it's great to find a little canyon where you can, because we're talking about um, truckloads of, of 
uh, ammo and rockets and explosives, stuff we've taken from the enemy. So you get this stuff and you, and you want to blow it up. But you can't go to the same place every time because, you know, the second or third time, bad guys are waiting there for you to show up. And then you're ambushed. And if you're going into a canyon that will kind of control the blast, it's, it's more dangerous. So we're always looking for new places. Well, we had this, uh, we had this truck that we had rented that was, I don't know, a, a, about the same size as a military five-ton truck. Carries a lot of, you know, it's not a semi, but it's, it's just loaded. And, uh, and we've got our, our Toyota Tacomas that we're driving around. So we, we drive this truck up, we find this little canyon, drive the truck in there, we unload this thing. I mean, it's a pile. It's huge. And uh, it was so big that we thought, all right, we better do this in a couple of different shifts. And uh, so we load up, we, you're, you're digging a hole with each shot that you can then load more stuff into and it makes it even safer because now you don't have stuff just going everywhere when you, when you blow it up. Well... Um, you know, you need to be, I don't know, a mile away when you blow this stuff up so it doesn't come down on you. So uh, we're blowing stuff up, and uh, at one point we notice all the stuff that we're blowing, a lot of stuff is going over the mountain that we're at the base of. It's this canyon, I don't know, it's probably a thousand feet deep or something. Probably a thousand feet. So... At one point, I decide, well, I'm going to climb up to the top of this canyon. Hold on one second. <laughs> okay, please continue. Okay, so we're, uh, we're in this little canyon. Mm-hmm. It's probably a thousand feet to the top of this hill, and I decide, I better go check and see what's on the other side. You know, you never know what's back there. We're in the middle of nowhere, but you never know, because stuff's going straight up, so you kind of want to know where it's coming down. And so I climb up to the top of this hill. Well... This spot that we were blowing stuff up, there was a little, almost a ditch that ran in front of it. And so as we drive our Tacomas in there, you had to take this ditch at a kind of an angle so you wouldn't bottom out on it. No big deal. And so uh, we're doing that. Well, I'm up on the top. I've got my, obviously I got a radio and the guys are down there. And uh, so I said, I'll be up at the top and watch you know, I'll just stand behind a rock and watch the stuff go up past me. It's, it's line of sight at that point, so I'm not worried about getting hit. I just want to see how far out it's going and um, if there's a village, you know, at the top of the hill. So I'm uh, watching these guys. They, they set it all up and pull the charges, and, and you have a bunch of, of preset fuses. And uh, I think ours were like two minutes. So, you know, you, you, you prime this pile with two minute fuses. It gives you two minutes to jump in your truck and drive. You can get, a, you can get pretty far away in a Tacoma in two minutes. So um, I watch these guys, they pull the charges and uh, jump in the truck. And uh, whoever was driving didn't take this fuse, didn't take this ditch <laughs> at the right angle. And so the truck goes thunk into the ditch and it's stuck. And so, uh, I, you know, I, this is suddenly interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and so I'm not, I don't say anything on the radio. So they all instantly, you know, the doors fly open, everybody gets out, and they're all digging and, and going like crazy looking at it. And uh, 
trying to back and forth, back and forth, and uh, I couldn't get the thing out. And I could see him over looking at the fuse, which is a mechanical fuse, um, so you can't see exactly where the where the fuse is burning. You can see where it's burnt and take a guess. <clears throat> but I know they were trying to figure out how much time do we have to do this, and at some point do we just start <laughs> running? And so it's funny now. It was to me, it was funnier at the time because <laughs> I mean, the, at the worst, you're going to lose a truck and have to explain to the Pentagon why they got to send us another another civilian truck. Anyways, uh, so as they were digging and looking back and forth, and uh, I finally got on the radio and said, "Hey, uh, you know, you guys ought to maybe think about getting out of there." And there was this. All I got in response was this big long stream of every cuss word you blankety blank and blank and blankety blank and blank and blank and okay thanks they finally actually got it moved out of there jumped in and and took off at uh, mock whatever to get out of there before the charge went and it was all fine but at the time it was pretty stinking funny to watch those guys stress over that <laughs> How how much time did they have after they started driving? Before they didn't have a whole lot of time. I mean, like like you said, I think ours were about two minutes was our kind of our standard fuse. So they probably took a minute and a half to get that thing out of there. I know they were right at the point of screw this, let's just go hit the dirt somewhere because that truck was, you know, it was twenty yards from this pile that. Uh, so you're talking about a couple of thousand pounds of explosives going off. So there, there was enough terrain difference that they, they you know, they could have hit the dirt relatively. They could have run 50 yards and hit the dirt and probably been okay. But I don't know, the blast might not have been too comfortable. But, but that was pretty funny. Do you remember, do you remember the first day you got to Afghanistan? Yeah. I uh, I do. We we started out in Uzbekistan, where there was a there was a special forces uh, staging base, and that's where our quick reaction force was located. Before we really went in and took the country, so um, everything started in Uzbekistan at a former Soviet uh, air force base there. So we rented that from the Uzbeks. And uh, that's everything got staged there to go into Afghanistan. So we started in Uzbekistan um, and did a, you know, a, a lot of stuff there. And then uh, one night we inserted into Kaust um, by C-130. And uh, that, was my, that was the night I got into Afghanistan. That was pretty, that was pretty interesting because just a standard... You, know, you can parachute in, or or you can, uh, or you can land the planes. Obviously, the easy way to do it. And you got a lot of gear, and that's the easiest way. So, we landed. We took this uh, old Soviet airfield, the dirt runway, right there on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so, uh, the the plane lands, and you just you back drops down, and everybody fans out, sets up her uh, perimeter, hits the dirt, and is ready for whatever's coming plane takes off as quick as it can and now you're in Afghanistan it's time to uh, time to get get about business so that was that was the point where you go wow we're now get shot at <laughs> starting right now 
Were you afraid? Were you excited? Like, what was going through your mind when you hit the ground and the plane took off? You know, at that, well, when the plane took off, it's interesting you, you asked the question that way because um, it wasn't till the plane took off that you realize, okay, we're now on our own and uh, it's now, you know, instantly quiet now. You got a plane right there, the engine's revving and, you know, you can't hear anybody because it's, it's loud and the prop wash from that thing is, is everybody's covered in dirt because it's a dirt runway. And so you don't have a whole lot of time to think about that until that plane gets out of there. And a couple minutes later, you realize, all right, here we are in a perimeter in the middle of this dirt runway and it's pitch black. There's no electricity anywhere and there's nobody around and at least that we hope. And, uh, yeah, it's time to do all that stuff you've been training for years to do. And, yeah, that, that uh, kind of gives you a little bit of pause that this is the real deal instead of training. Do you feel like your training well prepared you for everything you were up against from that moment forward? I, I do. Um, with, I guess, the caveat that you train for so many things. That's, uh, it, you know, to be in special forces, you've got to be a jack of so many different trades that um, you're thrown into different situations and sometimes you just feel like, all right, I know I've been trained on this. I know I know how to do it, but I haven't, you know, we haven't had time to practice this for a long time. So you've got to kind of think your way through it and, and hope that things come back to you and that... Uh, you get it done, but yeah, you don't always feel like you are um, large and in charge, and you know exactly what to do. You, you really feel like you're uh, generally prepared, and and hopefully that training as a in total has prepared you to be able to make good decisions um, in a variety of dis- different situations that that you can't actually train for that makes sense completely yeah um was it hard to make those split second decisions because you're i mean there's so much pressure there's so much on the line and how do you i guess stay calm in a moment like that to make the best decision you can you know it's it's everybody is different and and some guys are really calm and uh, make great decisions and some guys are not calm and don't make good decisions and uh, you just don't know until you're until you're there what kind of guy you are and it doesn't appear to be a training you know the military has researched these things for decades and you just don't know and there's just no way to train for it and some guys are real calm um, and methodical when when the crap hits the fan, and some guys are just a soup sandwich and just can't get their head on straight. And it's um, frankly, it's some of the toughest things that you have to deal with is guys that you know that you've worked with. That I mean, this is a part of who they are, and in combat when they don't perform how they want to perform 
and then have to deal with the after effects of that, that's really hard on on people. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it, it's really hard, and, it, and it's always surprising who does well and who doesn't do well. The I think the antidote for that is to get guys back into con into combat as quick as possible. You know, it's the parallels with that with the red badge of courage. That uh, who was that? What was that guy's name? I forget who it was wrote it, but uh, back in Civil War, um, where that was the. I mean, that's the whole essence of that book is that first time in combat sometimes guys just freeze up but the the best the best response to that is to get them back in combat so that they can perform the way that they want to perform and have trained and I mean it's the most important thing in the world to them and when somebody doesn't do what they're able to do or what they want to do I mean that is that's soul crushing so you got to get those guys back out there so that they can pull, perform. For whatever reason, I have no idea, but every time uh, shots were fired, um, I had to keep telling myself, that, oh, this, okay, this is, this is real, because it just, um, for whatever reason, it just didn't seem to, to hit me, I guess, that you got to be real careful here <laughs> you could get killed. So, I mean, that, that makes sense, though. You'd had so much training hearing sounds like that where you weren't actually in danger that you'd have to, like, readjust your mindset around it. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, the day I got wounded, um, these guys, they started their, their little attack by chucking hand grenades at us. And we were on one side of this, of this wall, and they're on the other side of the wall. And, I mean, there's, there's five of us on one side of the wall and five of them and they must have each had five hand grenades because it was raining hand grenades it was like 30 hand grenades come over this wall and uh, I remember somebody looked turn as we as we turned to back up and get out of there because I remember laughing and somebody was looking at me like what are you laughing about but it just struck me as as funny that all of a sudden 30 hand grenades come over this wall it's like really you're gonna like 30 i mean five wouldn't do two wouldn't do one 30 hand grenades that's a little overkill guys and then you of course you you realize well that they could all kill you so but uh, for whatever reason that was just uh i didn't have that that pucker factor in combat and i don't know what to it attribute that to it's not that I'm more uh, you know a stone cold steely eyed killer more than anybody else um, it's just some kind of personality trait or whatever that's different in some people well it seems to have served you and your teammates really well yeah it it had it did um, it was yeah it's great when when you're in combat and you know the guys around you are good and you know what they're going to do and they know what you're going to do and you can depend on each other and and in some ways you don't even have to talk about it you know what everybody's going to do um that's real comforting to have that assurance i bet i have a question for you um about that day Mm -hmm. the article i was reading didn't 
specify the person, but before, before you got wounded that day, um, one of your teammates had gotten wounded and they were just getting continuously hit with shrapnel and you got out from where you were and went and got them and saved them and you went into everything in order to do that. Boy, you've been reading a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yes. that experience? Yeah, what had happened, uh, he, he wasn't one of my, we had some 82nd Airborne soldiers with us so we had these guys um surround anyways they were so they're chucking hand grenades and one of the uh, 82nd airborne guys he got hit and and went down and so uh by that point i was behind a little mound of uh dirt and i don't know what the mound was there for it was anyways i was standing behind that mound of dirt so i was pretty well shielded and uh he was uh, just out on the ground, and they kept chucking these hand grenades, um, and so he was on his ground, on the ground, on his back, and so every time they they chuck a hand grenade, and it would land near him. I mean, he's he's body armored up to the max. I mean, he's and so, but he's still getting hit by shrapnel, you know. Yeah. But it, it, so every time a grenade had hit. He'd be on his back, kind of like a turtle, you know. And so it'd spin him around. So it looked like, I, I actually started to laugh because it looked like he was breakdancing. Because he was on his back, he'd, he'd just spin around a couple of times and, and, he, and then he was kind of trying to get up. And every time he'd try and get up, another grenade at him and he'd spin him the other way. And so in that, in that I mean, it's not funny because he was getting wounded. Um, so yeah, I it, I mean it wasn't that it wasn't that heroic, you know. It really was. I'm, it really wasn't, and uh, we just had to get him out of there. Uh, so, um, and I didn't, I, you know, I really didn't even, I, I didn't think about it that much. I didn't think I was putting myself in danger. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I thought I could get out there and grab him before they got him with another grenade. So yeah, I just went out there and, and grabbed him, and he was he was conscious. He was, you know, he was trying to get out of there himself, and so he didn't need a whole lot of help to get out of the way. So I just, you know, grabbed him, drug him twenty feet out of the way, and that was it. So. Is that what you got a purple heart for? No, I got a purple heart for getting wounded. Okay. That was what I got a bronze star for. Okay, understood. The bronze star with the little V on it for valor. Which was that was pretty cool. You don't you don't expect to do that. Maybe it's just like slightly more of a big deal than you, you explain it to be. It, it you know I, I mean I get I get emotional about the whole thing because it was so. Number one, it was a long time ago, and. Uh, You know, you you see those shows on TV where where the World War II guys, you know, they're old men, and they're and they're just chatting away about the war, you know, fifty years ago, and uh, somebody asks them a question just right, and they're just boom, 
the emotions right there. And, uh, you know, I've watched those things my whole life and, uh, and realized, wow, that's how I'm going to be. And uh, here it is, whatever it is, 15 years later, and, and I'm one of those guys where I'm, I'm, you know, one second I'm fine and somebody asks me a question that takes me back there and I think about all the, the I guess, the emotion of the whole thing. And you look back at yourself and realize, wow, I can't believe that was me. You know, that was me, and that was, and um, because I, in a lot of ways, I don't feel like that's that's not me anymore. I'm looking back on that person, going, "Wow, <laughs> maybe I, maybe I was cooler than I thought." I don't know, but I, yeah, it it can take me back, but I, I still don't think it was, uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. But I'm, but I'm proud of it. You know, I got that. Matt's probably seen it. I got the medal on the wall, and anytime I get feeling bad, I walk in there and read that citation and go, "Well, all right, it that sure makes me sound pretty cool." So it's nice to have. Time when it was wasn't easy to get that. They didn't hand those out. No, they did. As time went on, it's the Bronze Stars kind of became a staff award. But having the view for Valor is definitely harder to get. But I think back then it, it really meant something and it was harder to get awards back then. So it's pretty cool. And I remember when I was, when I was in the hospital laying there and, and uh, I'd never seen so many generals in my life. You know, I mean, I'm just an enlisted guy and that's not where I, I don't travel in those circles. I'm laying there on the bed and these generals are just lined up to to come shake my hand and all that kind of stuff and one of them gives me the uh, the gives me my purple heart right there and uh and he said that's the smartest thing i've ever heard a general say he said uh son i know this doesn't mean anything to you right now but in years it will and 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 at the time it didn't it it meant nothing to me you know I said, you know, chuck it under the bed with, with all my gear, you know, whatever. And uh, it didn't. I I just wanted to get back to my team. But yeah, that, now that means the it means the world to me. How do you feel like you've changed since then? You said you feel like a different man at this point in your life. Well, yeah, I'm an old man. Uh, you know that I mean you're just that intensity is no longer there you know when you're when you're in combat for that length of time um, and everything matters every day all the time it uh, it's an intensity and a uh, I guess the the intensity of it all it's everything it's so important every day and you can sit here I can sit here today and look back you know at all the things uh, that I wish we had done or wish we had done differently things I wish we hadn't have done if we'd done this this guy'd still be alive if we hadn't have done that this guy'd still be alive that the immensity 
of the whole uh, experience and the fact that you knew that it was that important. When we all have things in our lives that 20 years later you look back and go, wow, that was really, that was important. And you didn't realize it at the time, but we all knew the importance of that point in our lives. So it was like every day was you get up and realize 50 years from now, this day is going to mean something and I got to do this day right. And so I, I don't have that anymore, you know. Now I decide, am I going to eat at McDonald's or Wendy's, you know. I mean, you just, you don't have that impact. And I wish, in a lot of cases, I wish that I still had that. That it, it was that perp. yeah, I had that purpose and that impact, that importance of life. Um, and you're, you're never going to get that, you're never going to get that back. And a lot of us, we miss that. How was it readjusting? I mean, because you, well, this first off, you were in the hospital for a substantial amount of time. Um, you know, I really, uh, I was in, um, they flew me to Bagram. And uh, they, they looked, I had this piece of shrapnel that was right there on my brain. And they didn't want to mess with it there because it was too, you know, it's on your brain. They, they're not, they're, they're good surgeons, I guess, but they're not brain surgeons. <laughs> I guess there's a difference. <laughs> so they said, well, we're going to send you to Germany. And so I ended up in Germany and, uh, and the U.S. doctors there had the same, they did the same thing. Ah, it's right there on the brain. And uh, so the U.S. doctors said, we're going to send you to the German doctors, who there was a, a German university hospital there. And so they said, we're going to send you there because these guys are experts at this. So they'll know what to do. Because it was right there on my optic nerve and my brain, where the optic nerve touches the your brain, connects to your brain. So, and the Germans were, I guess, experts. So the, the U.S., doctor said we uh, we consult with these guys on all of our tough problems so you'll be fine I said all right whatever I'm you know so uh, I went to this German hospital and uh, they only had one guy who spoke English it was kind of funny because when I left Afghanistan all the SF guys we were all um, anonymous because we didn't know you know how what Al-Qaeda we didn't know anything about how deep it was in the U.S. or just where, how the tentacles of that organization were. So I was John Doe, I had a number, John Doe 24 or something like that. So when I left Afghanistan, the, the uh, doctors there said, all right, now we're going to lose you because you're just John Doe. And so John Doe 24, you know, somewhere somebody knows John Doe 24 is Lane Morris, but the reality is we, none of that's set up. So, um, you know, good luck. Uh, whatever, as long as somebody takes care of me. So, and I, I end up in German, this German hospital, and they don't know anything. So this German doctor, the only guy who speaks English, he just knows that he's, I've been sent there by the Americans. And so he's like, so, you know, what happened here? I'm like, well, I got hit by a hand grenade 
and he kind of looked at me like, where did this, where did this happen? I'm like, well, where, where do you think it happened? Anyways, so this guy, he, every, he keeps talking to me over for the next week. And uh, it took me a couple days to figure it out because he keeps calling me Herr Doe. <laughs> and uh, and I, I figured some kind of German thing. I finally figured out, oh, he thinks my name is really Doe. He's calling me Herr Doe, Mr. Doe. So I finally told him, okay, time out. My name is Lane Morris. And at some point, somebody's going to be looking for me. So keep that in mind. And he, he anyways. So... Yeah, the Germans did the surgery. I got hit on a Saturday. The Germans did the surgery to to remove the shrapnel on uh, Monday. And my wife showed up Tuesday. Um, and we left Germany on Friday. And uh, went to Walter Reed. And I left Walter Reed uh, a couple days after that. So I really was, I was only in the hospital. And I didn't actually stay at Walter Reed. They told me, my wife, to, I don't remember this a whole lot, but um, they wanted me to stay at Walter Reed. They took, the, they took the shrapnel out in Germany. And so all they did was sew my eyelid closed. And other than that, I was fine. And so uh, they said, we'll send you to Walter Reed and they'll remove the stitches on your eye so and and go from there. And so I got to Walter Reed, I think on a Friday or Saturday. And they said, yeah, why don't you stay the weekend? Uh, the doctor will see you Monday morning and we'll see about getting those stitches out. And I mean, I got my wife there. So uh, uh, she says, you told him, <laughs> you told him, you don't have enough people to keep me in this hospital this weekend. So... Well, I'll be back Monday, and grabbed her, and so we walked out and went and got a hotel. And I don't remember telling that lieutenant that, but she said the lieutenant kind of looked at you and went, "Um, okay." <laughs> so we left. So I left. We went to get a hotel, and uh, came back Monday, and they took the stitches out and said, "Yeah, you're yep, you are blind in that eye," and uh, that was about it. So it was literally you were on the ground in the middle of a in the middle of a lot of hand grenades. Then you were in the hospital for a very short period of time, and then you were back to ordinary life. Yeah, pre- pretty much. Yeah, it was it was pretty quick. You know, I got hit um, Saturday. It was. I think by the, it was Saturday, probably around noon, that I got hit and uh, got to Bagram. Um, you know, the medevac came in after the firefight was over. So I got the, the, the guy that was hit by the grenades. That was a little bit into the firefight. So I got hit afterwards after that. After I pulled him out of the way, then uh, we got back to going at it with these guys and they were they were chucking hand grenades because they we were all at this at this wall which was the exterior wall of this compound and just inside the compound there was a, another wall that was only about four feet tall so you have a T 
right? Mm-hmm. And you've got you've got us, uh, four of us stacked on the door to that compound, ready to go in, and our two Afghan interpreters who wanted to go in and try and talk to these guys because that's what they have, they love to talk about at first and see if they can talk each other into surrendering and you know whatever and these guys were were obviously from the middle east so anyways they wanted to go in and uh and so uh we told them okay you go and we'll try and cover you but stay down below that wall as you're trying to talk so we can cover you well the guys inside the compound five six of them had come up right to that T. So now you've got, you know, five guys on one leg of the T, another four guys on another leg of the T, and two other guys. So whatever that is, 11 guys, and we're all this far away, separated by this T. So as soon as our interpreters kind of started to call out to these guys and kind of gave away their position, these guys just popped up and just leaned over the wall and just shot them point blank. Um, and killed both of them. I mean, just just like that. We obviously started shooting them and, and killed two or three of them, point blank. And the rest started heading off to the back of this compound to another, to um, where there was a, some rooms for for cover. And so all the grenades were going off. They were working their way back there. I thought they were far enough away that they couldn't throw any more grenades. And so I've got the 203, which is the grenade launcher, on the bottom of my rifle. And so I can see them as they're moving their way towards the back of this compound. I can see their arms as they're, as they're chucking grenades. But I just thought they were far enough away. So anyways, that, that same dirt pile. I, so um, as they started to go, I thought, wow, I'll just wait till they get to the back of that compound where that you've got that vertical wall and I'll just shoot the vertical wall above their heads and, and get them with the shrapnel. And so when they got back to that point, I just popped up and shot my shot my round. And um, same time I pulled the trigger, I just felt something smack me in the eye. And uh, it's kind of funny how, how it, everything, time goes so, you know, freezes. And so I remember thinking when that, when I felt something smack me in the eye, my first thought was, oh, because it was, I mean, it was the exact same time I pulled the trigger on that 203 and you feel that recoil. And so my first thought was, my damn rifle just exploded on me. And, you know, I'm, and I've been whacked in the eye by some piece coming off my rifle. But then I remember thinking, no, I felt the recoil. So that round went downrange. So it wasn't my rifle. I'm too far away for a hand grenade. So somebody must have just got a lucky shot and shot me in the eye. And I'm standing here with my brains oozing out the back of my skull. I'm standing here dead. And so then I thought, this has got to be the coolest death on in the history of warfare because I'm just standing here dead. And... Uh, then I thought, well, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm actually still alive. And I took a step back because I realized I probably ought to get out of this area. So I took, I tripped, fell on my butt, and uh, guys all grabbed me. And anyway, so the funny story about that is, so I don't know, six months later, I finally meet up with my team again, 
And we're all, you know, laughing and joking and everything. And so that was like the first thing I told him, you guys got to admit that was pretty cool how I just stood there dead, huh? And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, I got hit and I just, I just stood there and took it. They're like, and they all start laughing. They're like, no, dude, you, that thing hit you. You were like, bam, down just like that, like a sack of potatoes. I was like, really? Oh, man. That sucks. I thought I just stood there for a long time. So yeah, it really time really does slow down in there. So I wasn't nearly as brave or cool as I as I thought <laughs> at the time. Anyway, so that so that piece of shrapnel whacked me. I was laying there on the ground, and uh, uh, one of the guys he I'm laying there wondering, oh man, I, I you know I'm okay other than I can't see out of my right eye and uh, a buddy of mine he, he walks up to me and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and he, he's kind of looking at me funny and he finally reaches out his finger and goes doink and puts it right here on my nose I'm like what are you, what are you doing that for and he goes because that's where you're bleeding <laughs> oh okay so he sat there for a while with this finger right between my eyes just on my nose trying to stop stop it from bleeding and uh finally he goes well, we're i really we really got to go kill these guys so you put your finger there and hold that so all right fine so i sat there and i wanted to so i had my rifle and uh and picked up my right i couldn't see out of my right eye and, and so i just switched to lefty and uh again i thought i was pretty darn heroic and uh you know doing my thing and finally somebody took my rifle away <laughs> <laughs> it's, i don't know i forget who it was but somebody and i it, i don't i think they were kind of they weren't very gentle about it It was something like give me that <laughs> so you weren't doing quite as well as you thought i wasn't doing quite as well as i thought and all i'm sure you were it's just part of the protocol like Thank do you. self-aid once oh, okay. you take care of the enemy because Superior firepower is the best medicine. So once you take care of that, it's like, all right, let's disarm him. That way, if he comes in and out, you don't want him to come back and get, think he's still in the fight and start. No, that's a good point. Take him out. No. I was highly offended. <laughs> <laughs> so did the the AT Delta work on you? And then transport bird came in, or you know, um, I mean, I really was okay, other than other than I couldn't see out of my right eye. And uh, we had other guys that were, were severely wounded. So I was really kind of on my own. Um, and not that there, you know, like I said, there was, I, uh, all right, well, I got something in my eye. Um, I'm not dead and I can still, you know, I know my name. And so I'm, other than I can't see, I mean, I, I really didn't know what was wrong with me other than I, I was bleeding like crazy, but, um, you know, it was, it was, I think it slowed down at that point. And so I thought I was pretty good to go. So, um, you know, people kind of left me alone. We had to finish this firefight and get these guys dead. Um, and, and plus we had air cover, uh, coming in. So we had F-16s and, and A-10s and Apaches were all straight from this compound. So it just wasn't time for medevac to come in and uh, there wasn't time for me to go, you know, get out of there. So I really just kind of had to 
sit there and wait while everybody else did all the best stuff. So once it's all over, it's like, okay, now Morris, you go. Did you at least clap for your team? Or? <laughs> I, I, was, I was pissed at that point. I mean, well, we just had, you know, we'd had two, two of our interpreters that get killed. So, I mean, you're just pissed. And so, yeah, I mean, I wasn't happy not being able to participate past that. But then uh, I realized, okay, it's over. I need to go see a doctor just to see what the heck's going on. So, were you in pain at that point, or no? You know, it felt it felt like um, you know those pop rocks mm-hmm. that you put in your mouth and they crackle. If if you took one of those pop rocks and put it in your mouth and you shut your mouth and you can kind of feel it this crackling. I I could hear when I first got hit. I could hear this little crackling as. I think it's just that really red hot piece of metal in your head burning. But it didn't, I, you know, it hurt like maybe somebody punched you in the eye, but it didn't, uh, it didn't hurt. I mean, after that I was fine. I think all the nerves are dead probably. So it, I mean, I'm not, you know, highly tolerant to pain or whatever. I mean, I'll. Plus the adrenaline though. Yeah. Yeah, all that, all that stuff. I, I don't. It wasn't a lot of pain ever. This sounds like you didn't even know what hit you. So I mean, no. I think probably not knowing that it was a grenade too. You're just confused and just. Uh, yeah, I know. I didn't want to. I know I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to touch my eye because mm-hmm. I was a little bit worried about how you know if it was gooey or whatever. And because everybody that looked at me was highly concerned. They're <laughs> 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 like, ew. So, because so then we're waiting at the uh, at the casualty collection point. So you wait for the helicopter to come in, and uh, this doc is taking pictures of everybody who's been wounded. And so he, as he's, because we had these, I think there was four other guys that were wounded that were going to get medevaced. So he's taking pictures of them, and he comes to me, and uh, I said, "Hey, you need to take a picture of me." And he said, "No, I don't want to take a picture." Of you. I know. I'm like, geez, I'm really okay here, but I guess I didn't look all that good. Which is pretty amazing because you really, I mean, if you look at me, you really can't tell that I'm blind in the right eye. Mm-hmm. This, this eyeball, it doesn't look straight ahead exactly, but it's not, you know, I think it's about, they measure it at the VA. So it's pointed out about five degrees, they say. But um, other than that, and when they, and when they took, uh, you know, went to Germany, the doctors are telling me how they're going to take the shrapnel out. And they, they had to come in, they come in from the side of your head because the shrapnel's back here. So they said, yeah, we cut down the, down the side of your, and pull the skin all the way back from your eye. We can pull it, it's really stretchy. We'll pull it all the way back to your ear. And then we take part of your skull out and go in from the side, get it. And my right, he said, don't worry, you won't even have a, st- you won't even have a scar. And so I went, well, now hold on. <laughs> I'm going to need a scar of some kind, you know. And he kind of looked at me funny like, no, you don't want a scar. He's like, yeah, we put it right in one of your, you know, right in your creases. And so you won't ever see it. And the guy didn't believe me because I told him I need a scar. I've seen enough movies and soap operas. The coolest guy always has an eye patch 
or a scar on his face. And so I got neither. So again, I've been ripped off. <laughs> no, I mean, it even goes in all the same directions as the other eye. Yeah, that took a couple months. When I, when I first got back, my eyelid didn't work. It just stayed closed. But if you opened it, the, the eyeball was staring straight up at the ceiling. So all you said was white. So it was really, it was kind of crazy looking. Um, so they were trying to figure out what to do, you know, if they'd have to remove the eyeball or maybe attach some nerves up so it would track. But it, after a couple of months, just all of a sudden the eyelid started to crack open and the eye started to just slowly rotate down. And I, was, I think it was about six months. After about six months, it, my eyelid worked and my eye would track with the other one. That's great. Yeah, so they didn't have to do... So I had, I had one surgery to, to get the shrapnel out of there and, uh, and that was it. Yeah, so I, I'm really, I mean, I'm really lucky in that way. And, and, and then for, for, um, for disability, the, the military, the VA looks at the loss of an eye. It's equivalent to the loss of a, a hand or a foot. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's worked out pretty well because I'd much rather lose an eye than a hand or a foot. I, I had a... I had an accident in a in a golf cart a few years ago, and it, and, uh, it uh, tore my. Anyways, my foot doesn't work very well anymore, and that affects me more than the eye does at this point. Yeah. I tore out all the tendons on the top of my foot, Jeez. and so I can my foot from the ankle I could pick it up, but other than that, my toes only work going down. So, You're not even a drinker, so like you can't even play. I know. I crashed this golf cart and it rolled over, and uh, so me and the golf cart slid down the asphalt road with my foot underneath, trapped underneath it, and me, and so it just sanded the top of my foot down. To, so, anyways, lost. Uh, anyway, so it was. Uh, yeah, people, people tell me. So were you? Drinking or screwing around? I said, no, I wasn't neither. <laughs> and they, well, maybe you, you should probably say that you were, because that's pretty pathetic. Where you at? I was just, uh, I was with, was I was Bobby. with Bob. Yeah, I was Bob. with Bobby and uh, James, a couple guys from the neighborhood. That sucked a lot worse than uh, than my eye. Your, your body really... Um, just uh, gets used to having not having the eye. I mean, it's, it's a pain, but you know, it's not like I think about it a lot. I know if I want to see Matt, I got to turn all the way to see him, and I'm a horrible driver. Um. <laughs> so once once you got home, was it relatively easy to adjust back to regular life, or like what did mm-hmm. that whole process look like? Because it was a whole career change at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was tough. It was tough. You, you know, our house is right underneath the, uh, where the airplanes turn around in Salt Lake Valley. And it's right where they lower their landing gear. And, uh, I mean, I lived there a long time. Didn't even, I never realized it till the first night I was home. 
and uh, that first plane came over and dropped its landing gear. And when that landing gear, it took me, it took me a while to figure this out, what, it, what the sound was. But when the landing gear comes down into the wind, it makes this, and it sounds exactly like incoming. I mean, exactly. The first night that I was on the floor, I mean, and you're in the air on the floor realizing that can't be incoming, but it, 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 exactly like it. That took me, I don't know, that took me five years before it didn't. I mean, it was pretty quick where I didn't hit the ground anymore, but you hear that sound and instantly your heart is just bubble, 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 and you're, and it just took me five years before I no longer flinched when I'd hear that sound. And it, yeah, I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm laying there in the, in the king-sized bed with my wife and I've got my rifle next to me because it, it, um, it just seems like the prudent and wise natural thing to do well yeah of course and so that took me a couple of months before it suddenly hit me you know I made it a good part of my life not sleeping with my rifle next to me I probably probably don't need to do that anymore so you kind of have to gradually wean yourself off of that stuff but that and the and the just the I remember when I came, a Vietnam guy said to me when I first got back, he said, it's 10 years before you'll feel like you're even close to yourself again. And I went, ow, oh, I don't, yeah, you Vietnam guys, I don't, I don't think that's true. And that guy was, that guy was absolutely correct. It was easy 10 years before you feel like you're emotionally... Emotionally is the wrong word, but it's ten years before you feel like you're looking at the world through the correct eyes, or the eyes you want to. For you, before you feel like you have the right perspective on the world. If you could give someone advice who had just finished their last deployment, had just finish being on active duty for good, um, what would you tell them? I'd tell them that it is, uh, it's a process. And it's, this isn't like a lot of things in the military where somebody's going to give you a task and you're going to go do that task and check it off the list and then you can move on to the next thing. It's not, it's not like that. You've, you've, so much of it, I think, is just time. Um, you got to give it time. And it's like doing a forced march. It's a 20-mile march. And if you're always looking up and looking around and seeing, you know, how many steps it is or how much farther i got to go and all that, it's like, any, you know, it's like watching the clock. It just, it'll, at some point, it's okay to just put your head down, stare at the ground, and put one foot in front of the other and make it one step at a time, one day at a time, and realize that, all right, here in a while, I can pick my head up and look around and realize that, okay, it's I'm a little closer, I'm a little better, I'm a little closer to where I want to be, and that's progress, and it's okay to put my head back down and plod on a little bit more. 
You don't have to answer this question if you mm. don't want to. Um, I just want to get the name right. <laughs> I love that dog. He's so sweet. He's such a goofball. We weighed him uh, about a week ago now, and he just turned a year in January. And he's no like, kidding. He's 91 pounds. Wow. He's huge. He's 90. So I got a dog from them now. Yeah. So I got a black lab. He's 90 pounds. I love black labs. Okay, hit me with it. Okay, so um, while you were at the National Ability Center, um, I was watching an interview you did. I don't know if it was Mm. for them or just in relationship to them. And you briefly touched on this, that there was a moment that while you were there that something switched for you. And you started to live your life more fully and to really start to engage in things again. Can you describe that moment? Yeah, that was probably the moment that I, that I accepted that um, I was, that I wouldn't, there was a lot of things that I couldn't do at the level um, that I was accustomed to and or that I wanted to do but that that's, that that's okay and you could still do those things anyways even if you suck at it right because when you're when you're used to doing things at a high level and then you can't perform at a high level you don't want to do them anymore it's it's painful right It just reminds you of how bad you suck at that. And so you have to get to the point where you can say, you know what, yeah, I suck at that, but I kind of like doing it. And so it's okay to do it and suck at it, and you got to be okay with that. And and that's what the National Ability Center was, for me, kind of helped me do that, you know. Plus I got my wife saying, do it. And that, and so that's helpful. It's re- and it's, and I don't know how I connected it up, but it's a little bit like aging. You know, it's one of those hey, stop your whining moments when you realize that I'm no different than anybody else. We're all, we're all going to get older, and we all, everybody has to face the degeneration or the loss of their physical abilities, and. So for me, it probably it happened a little bit sooner in a lot of ways than most people because I don't see as well and I'm a little off balance with my inner ear trouble. So yeah, I'm a little bit more like a half-blind, tottery old guy sooner than I want to be, but it's hitting everybody sooner or later. So you can sit around and whine about it, but you know I don't re- I don't really like listening. It's like listen to the old people tell you all their physical problems. Nobody wants to hear it. We're all going to get there. So, yeah, it was kind of a quit your whining. This is how you are, and you can, you know, whine about it the rest of your life, and let me tell you about my arthritis or whatever, or you can just get out there and try and do the stuff that you've liked doing your whole life. And so that was, I think that was the moment for me when I realized, all right, Quit trying to be, don't be such a whiner. Just 
don't worry about it. People think, you, boy, you really suck at that. Go out there and try it anyways, because if you like doing it, do it. If you could, could have given yourself advice at any one point in your life, I guess two questions. One, what would it be? And two, would you have listened to that advice? Um, well, two, I probably wouldn't have listened. Because, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Every time I ask that question, that is always the answer I get. Well, you know, all the things, you know, my my 14-year-old self would have kicked my ass um, multiple times by now because I do so many things now that at age 14, I swore to myself, oh, I will never be like that, right? And I, I don't think I'm that much different than other people, you know, where our, 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 our teenage selves look at our you know you can be 15 and you see a 25 year old and say I am never what and and I'm no different than anybody else so yeah I I could have given myself all kinds of advice at age 15 and I did and uh, yeah I I ignore all of it (laughs) at this point but so what was the what was the first question the first question was what would the advice have been You know, I'm really happy with the way my life has turned out. Um, And so I think my advice to anybody, to myself, would be do things that you want to do and don't worry about what anybody else thinks or gives you advice some kind of traditional path you know you gotta it, it, back in my day it was you, you gotta you graduate from high school go to college you get a job you work 30 years you retire you know that's what you do and I didn't want to do that I wanted to do a lot of things I like doing I got a wide you know I have like ADHD or something because there's all kinds of stuff I like doing. And uh, and I guess I probably gave myself that advice and I guess that is the one piece of advice that I did follow largely. Still, I do what I want to do and uh, I have lots of different experiences and uh, I guess I've kept that advice but that's what I tell people. Eh, don't worry about it. You, you'll make a living It'll be okay. Get a job. You don't have to make a ton of money, but make sure you're doing what you want to do. How was your homecoming? I think that'd be interesting. Um, I know South Jordan kind of gave you some honors. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when I came back to South Jordan, I don't know how it all got out. Part of the problem was I had a buddy called Liesl, my wife, on a satellite phone and tell her I was okay. So she knew before anybody else what was going on, kinda. And uh, so I, it got out pretty pretty quick um, that I was wounded, and that was kind of a big shock to everybody in Utah because they didn't realize we even had guys, you know, over there. And so, um, yeah, when I got back, they had the, the 
the uh, police, you know, the police escort home and people decorated the lawn and all that. We had just moved into that house before I left. So I didn't know anybody. And, uh, so, you know, they get TV cameras out there and they're interviewing everybody and everybody's saying, you know, what a great guy I am. And I'm saying to Lisa, who is that? They don't really know me. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was pretty, that was pretty neat to see that, you know, the flags and the people and the governor did, I don't know, there was Lane Morris Day there. Um, so that was, we had to go up to the governor's office and get all kinds of pictures taken and family and interviews. And, uh, yeah, it was a big deal. I remember that. Did you have your kids at that point? Yeah. Yeah, kids, our, our kids were, uh, oldest was 12. So they were like 12, 11, 10, and 8. Or, you know, they're, they're pretty close together, so. It was, all my kids are getting interviewed on TV. That's pretty fun to look back to my kids on TV. Did you get a key or anything? That's right, so I got keys, yeah, keys to the city. <laughs> That's right. I got keys to the city, a thing from the governor declaring it to be, you know, Lane Morris Day or something. And I've got all kinds of, i got all kinds of stuff. So what does that, that key can... give you? Do you get like a free pass anywhere you want to go? I don't know, because I got, a, I, got a, I got a ticket from South Jordan a little couple years later, and a key didn't do me any good at all. <laughs> and it says, key to the city of South Jordan. But, oh, yeah, and I was South Jordan Citizen of the Year. That didn't get me anything either. <laughs> yeah, and then I was uh, the the grand marshal of the parade that year. So it's me and Humvee. I got real good at doing that. The uh, wave, you know, where you wave at people like a elbow, like elbow, a home, wrist, wrist. elbow elbow wrist wrist wrist. Yeah, then I went down to because I was one of the first guys wounded in the in the in the whole war, and so that year the the uh, military. The Pentagon did a float in the Rose Bowl parade. So they flew Lisa and I and all the kids down to, to, to wherever the Rose Bowl is, California. And uh, I was on this float in the Rose Bowl waving at people. So that was pretty, that was cool too. What was it like having your kids through this whole experience? You know, I, I, I wish I'd, I wish I had. I, I wish I'd done that better. You know, my kids were young, and kids are pretty resilient. And so you think they're okay. You know, I mean, I, I got I got home and um, kids meet you at the airport, and they're I mean they're thrilled to see you, and you're thrilled to see them, and you get home, and uh, that afternoon they're asking if they can you know go spend the night at their friend's house. Because they're kids, and I mean that you know they okay. Here's dad. Dad, other than he's wearing that eye patch, he seems to be fine, and and I'm fine too. My dad's home. Everything's cool, and so now life goes on. And so you, when they you know, can I go spend the night at my friend's house, or can I go here, go play here, go play there? You think, ah, oh, my kids are fine, um, and probably they thought they're fine too but I, I wish there had been I wish that I had 
had been smart enough to say, you know what, we need to we need to go to some kind of a therapist somewhere and kind of talk about this because I think all of my kids um, kind of internalized the whole thing in 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 different ways. Some of them not not healthy, uh, and so some of them have kind of struggled with with different issues that I think um, go back to that point in their lives. It's so it's so weird because I mean I dream about my kids. Um, I dream about my kids. I don't know. It, Continually, I mean, I don't know about every night, but dang near every night. And I have never had a dream about any of my children where they weren't at that age. It's like, I'm, I mean, they're all, you know, married with kids. And uh, I, have, I have never had a dream about any of my children where they weren't the age that when I went to Afghanistan. Yeah, I'd, I'd go see some kind of a shrink about that. Have you ever talked to them about it? My kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about it. Um, yeah, we I, we talk about it. They've, I think, for the most part, they've moved on. None of them have joined the military. I think one of them would have, but his his wife doesn't want him to, probably because she knows me. So, <laughs> but um, so I think they're okay with that now but I think they've all struggled with it especially my daughter especially uh, I struggle with it and she's still she's pretty anti-military at this point and now I mean, she's always ever since then she's been un- anti-military I guess would be the best way to put it because why do you think like what I think she her perception is that the military took her father away and brought him back different and and not the father she wanted and uh, so she's angry mm-hmm. and she and she's to this day angry so my relationship with her is not what I what I'd like it to be. Um, and so um, anything that has anything to do with the military, she won't participate in. You know, if there's a, if the NAC is doing something, for instance, hey, come up and, you know, go, go skiing with us. If it's the NAC, um, she won't do it because there's a, there's a military connection there. So it's like she kind of harbors a grudge against that whole thing and and me but she knows she knows all of the positive things that came from your 22 years i th- i think so i think so um so she's not actively you know she's not a pro- war protester she's not like that okay. but she but i i think her personal where she's at peace is to say I don't want to participate with any of that stuff in any way. Is I guess just where she's at. Which that's okay. I you know, that's okay. And and she'll you know, I'm hopeful that she'll come around and 
and we'll have a better relationship. You know, I got a granddaughter. Love that grandkid. So. How would you feel about it if one of your grandkids, when they're older, or one of your kids were to say, like, I, I'd like to enlist, and this is what I'd like to do? I, I would be supportive. You know, I don't think you can, I don't think you can call yourself an American, frankly, or a, or a, or American with any kind of patriotism. No, I, I just, I don't think you can call yourself an American if you can't support people um, who choose to make the military a, a profession or are, or are sent off to, to war. I mean, that's part of the, that's, I don't like all the, all the laws that are passed, but I, I gotta support them. And if, if, if I got a kid who wants to join the military or the people in charge decide that we need to send the military to do this and that and the other, then I need to support that. I don't have to like it, but uh, people that are, that fight, um, fight that as a duty and as a responsibility and aren't willing to, to give credit to people who are willing to do that are, that, that, that bugs me. Me too. Just interesting that you talk about it because you've met my son before and, you know, he wants to grow up and be like me. I don't know why, but yeah, I think my ex-wife, you know, holds grudges against the military and focuses on the negative impacts it had on my life mm-hmm. and our relationship. So she always tells him, you know, you, you need to go to college and then after that you can join. But and I tell him, I'm just like, your life to live you're the one that gets to decide I'm going to support you however but when you're old enough like you get to make that decision yeah and I give mine all kinds of I give them advice when it comes to the military and they've asked me you know what would what would you do which branch should I join you know should I be an officer should I be whatever and and so I I give them all kinds of advice that way none of them have have joined um but yeah, I'd support whatever they wanted to do or not do. I mean, none of them are, other than my daughter, are 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 anti-military. And anti-military is probably the wrong word for her. It's probably more like Matt's situation where my daughter just looks at it and is like, eh, all in all, I don't think it's a good thing to do. And I, there's no doubt that, that uh, war... Um, takes a toll on people, but as a, as a country, um, you know we have to accept that. That's the price of freedom, I guess. Is I know it sounds cliche, but yeah, there is a burden to be born there, and uh, I, you know, I'm willing to bear my share of it, and and everyone else is too. And the military isn't for everybody. Some people, you know, we don't have a draft. So the people who join up are saying, "Fits my lifestyle, and uh, I'd like to do that." I don't. I tell people, I don't. Just because I joined the military, it doesn't mean I'm more patriotic than somebody who doesn't. It really doesn't. I don't love my. I didn't join the the military because I love my country more than the guy who didn't. Um, I I accept that I love my country, or other people love 
the country just as much as I do. I join the military because it fits my personality and my goals and my my lifestyle. Um, and there's there are obligations that come with that. So the only problem I have is with people who who are actively um, want to fight against our military or our our obligations to defend ourselves as a, as a country um, as a as a bad thing. The founder of Labs for Liberty, Joan Nold, um, she talked about a similar thing and she, she said, I can't go and be on the front lines. That's not my personality. That's not something I can do. But what I can do is she's a neonatologist and she also founded this organization. She's like, these are things that I can do. And if I don't do those things, somebody else will need to do, do those things. And if there are people on the front lines and jumping out of airplanes and all of that, then we won't have all of our freedoms. So no one is better than the other. They're just doing what they can do to help. Yeah. And, you, you know, in, in special forces, we, some guys get kind of, I kind of call it a kind of a, a prima donna attitude that everyone else is here to, to support me. And, uh, but you realize real quick, you know, that first time that you call for a resupply and they drop you a bunch of MREs that, you know what, there's some dude who's sleeping in a, on a cot in some hot, nasty, dirty warehouse where it's a hundred degrees. And all that, all that guy does is get up every day and go load MREs into things to, to, to push him out of a plane. And that guy's just as much a part of the team as anybody else. And I depend on that guy. And he, he deserves all the respect that anybody else does. And, and you have people like that in the military. You have people like that out of the military who are being supportive. But like you say, if the military is not for you, you should not join. It needs to be something that, that rather than just being a patriot, which... You don't have to join the military to be a patriot. Um, we all got our roles in life, but some of us, it, it, the military fits our lifestyle and our career goals, and it's, it's what we want to do. But it, it certainly has, to me, um, in my case, I didn't join the military because I'm more patriotic or I'm, I'm more patriotic than average. Um, I think I'm... I probably, um, I don't know, the, the experience I think makes you more patriotic. But I didn't join, number one, because I love my country. That's the underlying current that, that we all have. Some people don't realize it until something like 9-11 happens, and all of a sudden people realize how much they, they love their country. But I don't think people typically join the military because they love their country, excuse me. They join the military because it fits them, and they love their country. I think it teaches you to appreciate the things you have in your country, and it makes you realize how great the U.S. is, you know I mean? Right. Not showering for a couple months, it's like, wow, I can flip this knob and I got water. Yeah. Like, it's just the little things, it's, it's kind and of... And I, I still do that. When I get, <laughs> I air up every morning, I pull that. I pull that hot water and go. It's so awesome. <laughs> I 
been 15 years I do I cannot turn the hot water on without going oh man this is great I don't think that's a bad thing I feel like that's a great no. perspective to have it really is it really is but and and it's all but it's also a curse when you see other people whining about how terrible their life is and, and how much they're owed this or that or the other because it's not fair and on and on and on and uh, yeah and then when you've when you've been deprived of those things and you see how most of the rest of the world lives um, you, yeah it, it, it's easy to run out of patience with those with that attitude anyway yeah thank you for doing this it's been such a pleasure and not to sound too corny um, but it's been a real honor to get to talk to you oh thank you don't make me cry it's been fun I need to sit down and and talk about it a little more often frankly kind of helps you process things I guess it's weird to say I mean it's been 16 years now which you would think you'd be over it you know and you don't want to be I mean you know you don't want to be the guy I don't want to be the guy that you know 20 years later is walking around with the with the stupid hat with all your medals on it and the you know veteran hero on it (laughs) You know, yeah. I mean, at some point, you have to. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta move on. You can't. That's why I came back and went back to work. Like you can't just. You know, you can only survive so long with pats on the back, and people telling you're cool, before you realize you're just a dude without a job and nothing to do, and you're really not that cool. So. Well, you chose to keep living your life. And it sounds like you chose to keep living your life and let those things, let the past 22 years affect you and help you grow, but not like, not determine how you move forward. And, you know, and that's, and that's, that's a good um, way to put it. And I've tried to talk myself through that way to say, okay, you know, I had a great time. I had some terrible things. I had some great things. I need to pull and build on those really good things and, and put the bad things aside and move on. Learn my lessons, grow from that, and then move on instead of just, you know, marinating in the whole thing, which is where you get to the bad places is when you can't, you know, let it go. And they tell you that right off the bat. Man, you can't, you can't just lay there all night and get into this vicious cycle where you go if only I'd done this if only I hadn't done that and and guys do that where you have all these critical decisions that you've made that were either wrong or you just you know you flipped a coin and you and it didn't work out how you want and so you just want to relive those over and over and you can't fix them, so you just gotta, and you gotta just end up get at peace with them, so that you can take the good stuff and build on it instead of letting all the bad stuff just keep dragging you back down to regret and all that. Because that's a 
long and bitter road to to go down. That's what I struggle with. <laughs> yeah. To be frankly honest, it's it's tough, man. Yeah, I don't. Elisa was, she was mad initially because you know all the guys in the, all the guys back at Bagram in a nice safe, you know. I mean, they all had all the cool, you know, they had the, the $250 sunglasses that are bulletproof. It's like, if you'd had one of that, you know, you, like, you know, you can, you'd start down that, it's just not where you want to go. Yeah. You go to war with what you got, and it's never fair, but, you know, you just do it. But, yeah, you got to let that stuff go and build on the good and uh, pick a new... You pick. I got a buddy I was just with this weekend up in Yellowstone, snowmobiling, and he just wrote a book on, on overcoming. Um, and his whole thing is, you got to come back. You got to pick your next high value target, and focus on that thing like a laser beam. And purpose again. Yeah, decide what that is, and it's different for everybody. But you pick that and and approach it like you did the military, instead of. You know, just kind of wandering through life. Well, it's, I totally agree with that. It's easier said than done. Because, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is whatever situations any of us are in, whether it's in the military or not, you make the best decision you can in that moment. And if you had all the information you did 10 minutes later, you might have made a different decision. But in that moment, you do the best you can. And it's hard being that guy in that situation. Oh my just, gosh, you can imagine. Uh, it is. But you look at it, I mean, the advantage we have is, um, I mean, people in car wrecks all the time, that terrible things happen. And maybe it's their fault, maybe it wasn't their fault, whatever. Um, the advantage we have in the military, I mean, when I came home, my next door neighbor, when he was a kid, um, his buddy, he was like six years old, is little friend shot him in the eye with a bow with an arrow so his eye split so he's got he's missing an eye and so I look at that guy and go alright he's missing an eye and I'm missing an eye but he doesn't have anybody coming up to him on a regular basis patting him on the back and saying hey you know thanks and you know he doesn't you know cops don't pull him over just to say hey you were, you were, I know you're going 20 miles over the speed limit, but thanks for your service and have a nice day. I mean, you know, there's people out there that have, have suffered trauma that has been maybe their fault or the result of those bad decisions, and they've got to do the same thing. Um, in a lot of ways, us guys in the military need to realize that our trauma, it, it, we're, we're fortunate we're fortunate because nobody's getting through this life without trauma and regret and things that have bad have happened to them. And ours may be a little more dramatic, you know, um, and maybe a little more impactful. But like I said, I, people get in a car wreck and, and run over some kid or back over a kid in the driveway or whatever. And that's pretty, that's pretty traumatic. And they've got to go on with their lives and, and nobody's patting them on the back. So I, that's, that has kind of helped me. That, that self-kicking in the butt 
you know. 